Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John 10 and read verses 27 to 30. We'll be focused on 28 to 30. But a sentence begins in 27. It says, The word of the Lord, it is eternally true. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. Father, we are in need of nourishment. We are in need of being rebuked. We are in need of being built up. We need the healing balm of your word, and so we ask that your spirit would be working in us as your word is preached, giving us understanding, bringing conviction to our heart, showing us our sins, and granting to us genuine repentance. So bless this, the preaching of your word. May the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So we continue with with Jesus' words recorded in John 10. Last time we focused on that one statement, that one verse, verse 27. How do you know if you are a follower of Christ, a sheep in his fold? Well, you hear his voice, right? He knows you, and you obey him, you follow him. Now, this is important to keep in mind as we come to the passage, the verses that we're going to look at this morning. Verses 28 and 29 are, or should be, glorious in their comfort. They should fill you with joy. They should make you sigh and relax, take a deep breath, and wonder at God's grace. They are promises from Jesus to those who are His. They are guarantees. What what are the promises? Jesus will give His sheep eternal life. They will never perish. And in this life and the next, no power is able to steal them away from Jesus Christ. There is no power that could do that. These verses present to us the doctrine of perseverance or preservation, whichever you prefer. I prefer preservation. But the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints a fifth of those five doctrines of grace. So who can name all of those five doctrines of grace? 
I'll give you a hint, right? Tulip. Anyone want to give it a shot? Come on. Zeke? All right. No, 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 no. No. I'll say them. Total depravity, unconditional election, particular redemption, which we've misnamed limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So two-pip is how we go in this church. Now, all of those doctrines, right, hang together, and, and each of them... Uh, individually should, should fill you with joy in believing because they take, this is what they do, they take salvation out of your hands and firmly place your salvation from beginning to end in the hands of God. And God is not weak. God doesn't even change. God is perfect in his omnipotence, right? Unlike us, God is omnipotent and God is holy. So whatever he does is done and done with perf- perfect intention and with perfect holiness, right? All that he does is good and there is no power outside of God that can, can ever sort of catch God off guard or overwhelm him or outdo him. There's nothing like that. God is never surprised. God is never on his heels, so to speak. He's always out front. Um, Not even the power of man, not even the power of man catches God off guard. Um, Do you contemplate these things? Do you contemplate the immense power of God? Do you contemplate the, the providence of God? I've been because I was forced to teach the Westminster Confession on it a week ago, you know, last Sunday. And it's been something that's just stuck with me, meditating on the providence of God. The God who is enacting his will perfectly in this world. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Or, on the other hand, has your theology booted God out of the world? Right, that is the intended at points and sometimes unintended consequence of our theology. We just kick God out of the world, or at the very least, you know, we boot him out of the process of how someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. We may not want to boot him out of the world. We'll talk about his providence, but certainly when it comes to salvation, you've got to have a free will that you enact yourself, or it's not for real. But many do, um, but our verses today do not allow such a view. They just cast it out. You can't have that view. God is sovereign over our salvation and over the preservation of those he has chosen to the end of their life, right? Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. They will never perish. Notice that Jesus is the one dispensing eternal life. He gives eternal life to whomever he would like to give 
eternal life. He doesn't just hypothetically give it to anybody. He actually gives it to those who are his sheep, those who by his sovereign grace hear and know him. And they know his voice. And it's worth pointing out that this very statement, this very statement is a claim of divinity, isn't it? It's a claim of divinity. Now that they're in membership, she just she's gonna she's gonna talk, right? She's got things to say. Not one of the prophets or apostles made the claim that they could give eternal life to someone. None of the prophets, none of the apostles ever did that. Right? Jesus did, and in a few moments, he, he's going to make that claim of his divinity quite explicit. Right? He gives them, his sheep, eternal life. They live even after they die. They will die unless the Lord returns before they die. But if not, they will die, but they will not perish. Right? The, to perish is to die and not know eternal life in his presence. That's what it means to perish. It is to die and then die again. It is to die and die the second death. It is, and, and that is those outside of Christ die, and then after the resurrection, they will die again. The book of Revelation speaks to this final state of those who are not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's the second death. That's what Jesus says, that even if you die, you know, you, you may not perish, but some will die and perish. And, I, you know, just to stop and think about this, do we even talk about hell anymore? We just, the, the Christian faith, the Reformed faith, the Presbyterian faith, does not, in my experience, talk about the doctrine of hell. We don't do it. Um, we avoid it. Pastors don't preach it. Um, why do we not warn and plead with people because, because we have the big picture in mind? Right? Do we believe hell is real? Do we believe that those outside of Jesus Christ will eternally perish? They will be eternally consumed by fire. In fact, they'll be destroyed by fire and never be destroyed. They will always have something to give in being eternally destroyed. They'll be destroyed and not consumed. That is hell. That is the picture of hell in Scripture. Do we think about that? Do we... Do we, do we believe people outside of Christ will be subjected to the holy wrath of an angry God for ages and ages without end? Do we believe the testimony of Scripture and the words of Jesus himself? Right? You remember what he said. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. 
And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the ages, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fires, so shall it be at the end of the ages. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. That's what Jesus said. I mean, Jesus said a lot of other sweet, sweet things. But he also mentions that separation between the goats and the sheep. Between those who are citizens of heaven and those who are in the domain of darkness. Right? In, in, a, in a, a citizenship that is led by the prince of the power of the air. So we cherry, we cherry pick the scriptures, don't we? We most certainly do. Or we just ignore a lot of scriptures. We ignore them if it doesn't suit us. We'll ignore them and, and we'll live however we would like. Right? And we certainly do it when it comes to those who die outside of Jesus Christ. We cling to hopes that so-and-so who never ever professed faith, perhaps, you know, perhaps came to faith in those final moments of his life. I mean, that's somewhat understandable and, and even possible. I don't doubt that. But I think it's far more common today just to, in the contemplation of our loved ones dying and going to hell, just to completely change our doctrine of God. Right? We just change it. We make God submit to our sense of fairness, and we bellow that, God, you have no right over the clay. You have no right over the clay. Right? And that, that we say that God cannot make one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use. We say, that's not fair. Right? And so because we can't abide by the doctrine of hell, especially as it relates to him not having mercy on whom he will not have mercy, we, we again, cast God out of the world or we recast God into a God who waits and responds but is certainly not working all things out by his decrees. Right? We, we make a God who waits and responds. A God, and, and somehow people find more comfort in a God who is impotent than a God who ordains all things that come to pass. Because then at least, at least... My love is freely chosen, and I have an easy answer for those who choose not to love him. They choose hell. Now, we will all die. But I truly hope that none of us will perish. It's hard for me to imagine going without the comfort that comes in this life through the knowledge I have of Christ and the promises that, that he has made to me about eternal life. Notice, notice that I give is in the present tense. I give eternal life. Right? So Ryle says of this 
this tense. Eternal life is the present possession of every believer. Comfort in this life and unimaginable comfort in the next life, right? But not for all. Not for all. Not for those who will not hear Christ. Now that leads us to this wonderful statement from Jesus about his protection of his people. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one, Jesus says, will snatch them out of my hand. Now stop and think about this for a moment. It's a categorical statement. No one will snatch them, his sheep, his children, right? His chosen ones, his people, out of his hand. In light of this verse and the next, which speaks of the Father's exact same protection, it's hard to believe any Christian could believe that a true believer can at one time be in the Lord's hand and at another time be out of the Lord's hand. Right? It's hard to believe that's, that a Christian could, could have a doctrine that says at one time a true believer can be in the Lord's hand and then at another time remove himself from the Lord's hand. Right? What Jesus is saying here is, is the same as what is said elsewhere in Scripture. Deuteronomy 31.6, Hebrews 13.5, it's restated there. I will never desert you, never will I ever forsake you, says the Lord. I will never forsake you. Right? Did, did you know that it is more likely for the mountains to suddenly disappear than it is for a child of God to be forsaken by God? That's what Isaiah tells us. He says, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. The whole earth can shake. The old, all the mountains could fall down. But the Lord will never forsake his covenant, his people. But those who say that a child of God can be in the hand of Christ and the Father at one time and out of it at another time are essentially saying that God forsakes his children. God forsakes his children. But you may retort, as you're thinking this through, that it's not the fault of God, but that it is the fault of the person if they are at one time Christ and then at another time not Christ. They remove themselves, they fall away, but that is to ignore our verse in John. It says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Does that no one include the self? Yes, it does. It includes even you. No one. No one. Ryle writes, Whitsby's interpretation, they shall never perish through any defect on my part, though they may fall away by their own fault, is a sad instance of unfair handling of Scripture. Right? To add those phrases in there that make it seem as if, well, they won't fall away on my part, but they may do something that makes them fall away. 
Spurgeon, Spurgeon says this, there is a way of explaining away everything. I suppose, but I really do not know how the opponents of the perseverance of God's saints will get over this text. They may do with it as they will, but I shall still believe what I find here, that I shall never perish if I am one of Christ's people. If I perish, then Christ will not have kept his promise. But I know he must abide faithful in his word. He is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Every soul that rests on the atoning sacrifice is safe and safe forever. They shall never perish. Okay? Jesus does not lose any of his sheep. Back to me, folks. I want your eyes. Me, me, me. Okay? Jesus does not lose any of his sheep. He does not turn away from caring for them and allow them to plummet off of a cliff. He does not get distracted with other cares and neglect his sheep. He does not withdraw at a certain distance and, and put them into a life or death battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. No, he has his sheep in his hand. In his hand. Have you ever been in a crowd of people, men, and you're concerned that someone may pull your wallet out of your back pocket. I mean, it used to be that we carried wallets and we carried them in our back pockets. No one, does anybody do that anymore? I mean, yeah, I see some hands. Cool. Cool. Keep it up. But when you're in a crowd of people, you know, a crush of people, it was my practice to move it from that back pocket and put it in my front pocket where I could put a hand on it. To hold it, to know it's not being taken, to know that I've got it, and it's, not, it's, it, it's, it's much safer there. Um, you hold it in your hand because you are vigilant about your wallet's location. Jesus Christ has his people in his hand. He keeps them safe. He knows where they're at. He keeps them in his hand. Scripture even speaks about the citizens of Zion being inscribed on God's hands, right? Isaiah 49, but Zion said, listen to this, this is the Zion speaking first. The Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And then the response of the Lord is this, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. So not only are we in God's hand, we are tattooed on his hand. Okay? We are engraved there and have no chance of falling out or of being removed from that hand. In other words, we are as close to God as he is to himself. That's how close we are. We are united to Christ, and Christ and his Father are united as one. There is no distance between God and his people. There's no distinction between, I mean, there is distinction between creature and creator. But there is union 
There is union there. Now, there should be immense comfort in this doctrine of the preservation of the saints. To deny it is, is a terrible error. Right? Bovink writes, if one holds on to God's immutable decrees, then all human willing cannot undo the outcome. If one denies predestination and foreknowledge in any sense, everything becomes uncertain and unstable, including the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, right up until the hour of one's death, indeed, why not also on the other side of the grave? The human will remains decisive and all-controlling power. Everything will be as that will determines it will be, right? If that is what you assume, that the human will determines, then everything will be that that will determines it will be. You like that thought? Many do. Many like that thought. It all depends upon me. It all depends upon me, right? I've, I've got this figured out, and it all depends upon me. And the only person who can actually be thrilled by that thought has severely overinflated thoughts of self. Severely. If it all depends upon you, sinful, dead soul, well then, you will fail. You will fail and you will forsake and you will abandon and you will not know. That's what will hap happen. Scripture presents a different picture. Salvation from first to last, from regeneration to perseverance to glorification depends upon God. And his will. And what glory in that because God is omnipotent. What does omnipotent mean? There is nothing that he can't do. All powerful. Right? Now having said that, we have to return to the passage we looked at last week. One verse prior, we had been discussing what evidences someone gives that will uh, demonstrate that they're a child of God. The child of God, you remember, follows Jesus. In other words, they really do try to live according to God's word. They really do try to live like Christ. They, they want to produce fruits. They really do pursue holiness in their sanctification. Right? Now, why does that matter in this context of perseverance? Because many object to the doctrine of perseverance because they say it will lead to spiritual laziness. Why pursue holiness, they reason, if my salvation just depends upon God's decree? Why pursue holiness if that holiness doesn't determine if I'm in Jesus' hands or not in Jesus' hands? Why pursue holiness if really nothing depends upon that pursuit of holiness? Are the sort of questions they might, might ask or ask of you. What do those questions reveal, though? 
What do those questions reveal? They reveal that those who don't hold to God's decrees, including perseverance, really do think that their salvation is by their pursuit of holiness. They, you know, they really think that their salvation is by that pursuit of holiness, which is to say that they are like Pelagius, who was simply a moralist. He was a moralist. That means they believe they are saved not by the grace of God alone, but by the addition of their choices, like whether they eat meat or dance or drink alcohol or or rescue dogs from the pound, which has so much cachet in Hollywood right now, right? Um, or, or say their Hail Marys, or support the Republican Party, or support the Democrat Party, right? Or hate Donald Trump, or love Donald Trump, or hate Joe Biden, or love Joe Biden, or, or get woke, Right? Getting woke is, is today's way of getting righteousness and virtue. Pelagius wrote this, Grace is given in order that what is commanded by God may be more easily fulfilled. <laughs> oh man, do you realize what's bad in that? Grace is given in order that what is commanded by God may be more easily fulfilled. We would say, and Augustine with his slap down of Pelagius would say, grace is given in order that what is commanded by God may be fulfilled. Not may be more easily fulfilled. That would mean you could be saved away from grace. Augustine says, no, 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 we are dead in our sins, and so there is no cooperating with grace. It must be all grace. Now, I don't want to get into the whole debate between Augustine and Pelagius, but I will say that the understanding of salvation as the work of God's grace from beginning to end, the doctrine that rocked the world right during the Reformation, was there in Augustine over a thousand years earlier, right? This has not been a wispy part of the, the doctrine of the church. But back to the assertion I'm making, many will say that there is no reason to pursue holiness if there is nothing to it or nothing in it. That shows that they are moralists who, though they speak of the grace of God and salvation, are really relying upon their own works in their salvation, right? Augustine and the reformers said, no, works of righteousness or the pursuit of holiness does not contribute to our salvation. Rather, and this is the point I've been working toward, works of righteousness or the pursuit of holiness are the proof of our salvation. Okay, they're the proof. They're the evidence of God's sovereign grace having worked in us. They're not the attempt to run up the hill to God's temple, right? And to, and to say, God, look at the righteousness and the merit that I've earned on my own. No, no, not at all. And so the, the, the works that we do are, are proofs that God has condescended and, and as a gift 
dropped this pool of grace upon us in his son Jesus Christ. Verse 27 says it. The sheep of God follow Jesus. The sheep of God. The regenerate ones, the ones who have the grace of God, follow Jesus. Who are the sheep of God? Those who have been given eternal life by the grace of God and whose names are engraved on his hand. How do we recognize these sheep of God? They follow Jesus. They obey Jesus. They work out their salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in them both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? The sheep of God pursue holiness Delight in obedience because their very wills have been changed by God's sovereign action. The moralists, the Pelagians, would have you believe that the only one who could pursue holiness is the one who is going to get something out of it. Some kickback from God, some reward that they are not guaranteed to receive. The scriptures say that God by his grace saves some and that their works evidence that they are his, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And that is why so many people live. Every pagan lives to boast. Every Pelagian and semi-Pelagian lives to boast. The only people in this whole world who never boast are Christians who are born again. They have no boast. They have nothing to boast about because they've received everything. But do you realize that the pastime, the great, the great run of the race in the world is simply, I need to have something to boast about. That, that is the, that is the uh, definition, that is the uh, why anybody does anything. They want to boast. Jesus takes away his children's boast and gives them instead eternal life. But I, I stopped in the middle of it. It's it, that for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you can't take any credit for because God prepared them beforehand so that we would walk in them. <laughs> oh, man. There is no plucking a regenerated child of God out of the hands of Christ. And they are not the sort of person who would pursue sin because they are guaranteed a seat on the, the bus to heaven. Right? No, the children of God, the members of God's own household, love their father and simply want to be like him. And they do that because God has blessed them with a new nature. They, by God's work, are being conformed to Christ. Their work evidences their faith given to them as God's gift. Now we go to the book of James, James 2. But someone will well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith 
is evidenced by works, right? Ryle writes, The man who boasts that he shall never be cast away and never perish while he is living in sin is a miserable self-deceiver. It is the perseverance of the saints and not of sinners and wicked people that is promised here. Now, so sure is this salvation of God's sheep that Christ speaks of no one plucking them from his hand, then says the same thing about his father. My father who has given them to me, so they were first the possession of the father in some sense. He gives them to the son, but my father, he says, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And so it's a double security that the saints know Christ and his almighty father. It's a double security that will keep them securely. Let me draw one thing out of this verse. By saying that the Father is greater than all, Jesus is giving us great grounds for our assurance. There is no power greater than the Father's. He is the one who has given uh, you to Christ, and Christ has secured his favor by living a righteous life and dying on a cross in your place. God, the Omnipotent One, has worked out everything, and so there is nothing you should fear. But you will not always feel like God is powerful. You won't feel that way, right? When you put a loved one in the ground and see him no more. When you're in the midst of of warfare, literal or, or spiritual, when you are assailed by temptations, when you, when you suffer and hurt, when you are sleep-deprived and exhausted, when, when God ordains you very difficult providences, you may not feel at those times that God is powerful, but let me ask you, would it help the situation if Scripture asserted that God is not the greatest power? I mean... Would it help you to know that the forces of nature are stronger than God? So when a tornado blows through your home, God was impotent to help. He was not in that. Would it help you to know that God is not able to come to the aid of those who are tempted? Because that is just not something he can do. Would it help you to know that Satan and his demons can do whatever they please because God does not have that long of a reach. Would it help you to know that God depends upon your immense power, I'm being ironic, for things to get done and stands back waiting to see what will happen? That's horrific. That's horrific and flies in the face of what Jesus teaches here. The Father is greater than all. The Father is greater than all. There is nothing that compares, and His greatness is so extensive that He governs whatsoever comes to pass. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered by God. All those hairs caught up in the vacuum cleaner have numbers. And then the numbers on your head are reduced. But God knows the number of all of them. 
So fear not. You may at times feel like God is distant, that God is uninvolved, that God is impotent or uncaring. And the scripture teaches us that when we feel that way, we are feeling wrongly. Theologian writes, we may lose property, liberty, and life for Christ's sake, but our souls cannot be lost. All sheep are in Christ's hand, his hand holding them and not their hand holding him. Now finally take in verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I take this to be a triple assurance of God's persevering grace. Not only are we in God the Son's hand, not only are we in the Almighty Father's hand, but the Father and the Son are one. They are not in competition. They are not in conflict. Christ has received those whom the Father gave to him, and they are one God. They are not one person, they are two persons, but they are not to be confounded, right? They are one essence, one nature, one power, one will, one operation. We have the Son's persevering protection. We have the Father's persevering protection. And the determination of God is so intense because that will is one. So, dear brothers and sisters, take heart. Not one of God's children will be lost and fail to reach the eternal Sabbath rest. Not a single one. The child of God will sin, but even that sin will meet with God's grace and provided repentance. No anxiety, no fearful situation, no disease, no loss, no power shall overcome God's power. Nothing raised up against you shall prevail because God is on your side. God is with you. God will never leave you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what this is all about. If that doesn't put an, you know, a, a that doesn't put a smile on your face, encouragement in your heart, even make you, you know, 
Uh, you're Presbyterian, so this is hard. You might even dance. You ought even dance. Actually, dancing is a scriptural command. You should dance. You should dance with joy before the Lord. You should dance with joy before the Lord because that's the sort of thanksgiving that this stupendous doctrine deserves. Right? To think that he will never, ever lose you. And that it does not depend upon you, but on his mercy, on his immense grace.